I love a congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, an athlete training for the Olympics, has to undergo a strict regimen of diet and exercise and training. If the athlete gets distracted, they're not going to be able to, to run the race. And so it is with the Christian life. You remember the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 12. Christians run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And we have to focus on that and not get distracted. And that's what Paul is saying over and over in this letter to Timothy. He's saying it to Timothy, and through Timothy, he's saying it to the office bearers of that mission field around Ephesus. And through them, he's saying it to all the believers. He's saying, don't get distracted. Keep focused. Fight the good fight. Keep the faith. Keep the main thing the main thing. Because it's all about Jesus. And the minute it stops being about Jesus, we've lost the plot. And so... As Paul continues here in chapter 4, of course, when he wrote the letter, he didn't divide it into chapters and verses. But he's going straight on for what he just said about the Lord Jesus in chapter 3, verse 16. He just said in verse, the verse before our chapter, he said, this is the mystery of godliness, and it is a great mystery indeed. It's all about Jesus. The life, the work, the person of Jesus. His incarnation, his victory over death, his proclamation in the world and among the nations, and his church-gathering work as he sits up on the throne in glory and rules from on high. It's all about Jesus. And as we go into, into chapter 4, Paul says, any other focus, any other teaching which does not lock onto Jesus is the teaching of deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. These are very high stakes. Christ and his word is life. And anyone that comes with any other message, no matter how nice it sounds, no matter how nice they are, anyone that comes with any other message is bringing death. And it's not just out there. It's a fact that every false religion and philosophy that tries to give some idea of meaning or hope to the human being and the human condition is simply deceit. It's just recycled lies of the kingdom of darkness and the teaching of demons. That's how the Bible characterizes other religions and philosophies. And when we hear that and we see that word demons there in verse 1 of our chapter, we may think of, you know, little pitchforks and little horns and little red impish creatures, but that's not necessarily the way it always works out. The doctrine of demons can sometimes come through the sweet old grandma that lives down the street. Fact is that no matter how it comes or through who it comes, Anything opposed to the gospel of Christ is demonic deceit. It brings death. You're in a spaceship, 
and it says on the door, please don't open, because if you open it, you'll lose all your oxygen, you'll die. There's no difference between the person, there's little difference between the person that with violence attacks that door with a, with a sledgehammer or the person who in all sincerity with a smile on their face tells you that they're sure that just opening the door will give you a little bit more air to breathe. Both of them are going to kill you. And that's the way it is with any false teaching. But Paul focuses here in our chapter, not on false teaching in general, but specifically on false teaching which comes into the church. He says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. That means they were walking in the way of the faith and then they leave it again. The word used in the Greek is the word for apostasy. They apostatize. And the Spirit has told Paul and the other apostles that this is going to happen. And the church at Ephesus knows that because he has already warned them about it. We seem to be going to Acts chapter 20 a lot. And so we'll go back there again this afternoon. Acts chapter 20. And look at verse 29. Paul is speaking. He's traveling towards Jerusalem. He's arranged to meet the elders of the church at Ephesus. And what does he say to them in verse 29 of Acts 20? I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So that's stuff coming in from the outside. But then look at verse 30. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. This is a revelation of the Spirit of God that has been given to the Apostle Paul and to other apostles. We read about it in other places in the New Testament. And Paul is reminding the church of what he's already told them. People are going to come, they're going to try and twist the word. And you've got to be on the alert for that. Because they're the most dangerous. The heresies, the false teachings that come clothed in lots of God language, lots of Bible language, lots of Jesus language, the words of heresy which come to us from within the midst, the bosom of the communion of saints. We've got to really be paying attention to that because it can cause a lot of damage. It's a fifth column in the church of the Lord Jesus. And then he describes what kind of things these people bring up in the verses 3 through to 5. Now, if you have your Bible open, you'll notice that there's a repetition. Verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5 is kind of like a pyramid. He's, he's repeating both sides of something. Look carefully at verse 3. What do they do? They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created. So they're against the created ordinance of marriage and created foods that God made good. And those things ought to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So creation of good gifts and thankful reception. Now look at verse 4. He goes, says the same thing, a little more succinct this time. For everything created by God is good. There's the creation. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So verse 3, created good things, received with thanksgiving. Verse, uh, verse 4, created good things, received with thanksgiving. And then look at verse 5. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, if it follows the structure of verses 3 and 4, the first part would be about the creation, and the second part would be about receiving created things with 
thanksgiving. And of course, prayer and thanksgiving go together. So where's the creation bit in verse 5? Well, when did God declare all of the created things holy and good? Genesis chapter 1, he does it over and over and over. God saw what he had created, and behold, it was good. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. It is made holy by the declaration of God himself. And these people are coming along, and they're taking things that God has made for his glory, for our joy, and they're making all kinds of rules about them and saying, you can't enjoy this and you can't enjoy that if you want to be a good person. And that's what false teachings always do. False religions out there, false teachings which arise in the church, always crash into the created order and all its goodness. They don't fit with the way the world was made to be, because that's what sin is. Sin is the twisting of created things. Sin doesn't exist by itself. It, it was, it's not as though that on day Nine, God created sin. Sin is not a created thing. Sin is the misuse, the twisting, the breaking, the going against of the good things that God has created, the misuse of them. And so there in Ephesus and in that region, the heresy coming into the church involved the creation, as all heresies do in some way or another. They involve the basic fundamental ordinances of the created order. And in their case, they were forbidding the enjoyment of good things. Marriage is a glorious thing, which God made for his glory for our joy. And these people are saying, well, if you want to be a good person, you don't get married. If you want to be a real holy person. And then there were all kinds of rules about what you could eat and what you could drink. Now today, we are witnessing the opposite. You see, the devil can go either way on this one. He can, either, he can either try to incite heresies which forbid the enjoyment of good created things, or he can promote heresies and false teachings which twist the word and which twist the creation and which incite us to celebrate the misuse of created things, the created gifts of God. And we see that in the worldwide church today. Just this last week, the Church of Sweden came out with a, a, an announcement saying the church is also trans. And so we see a church which claims to be a church of Christ celebrating a movement which glorifies the mutilation of bodies in an attempt to make them pass for the opposite sex. It is the devil just delighting in destroying and despising the created order that God has made. And this is just one more step along the road which the worldwide church has been walking for a long time. Because already the church, in the broader sense of the word, Christianity, has been invaded by the movement which celebrates the twisting of what marriage is between a man and a woman for the purpose and with the promise of fruitful generation of new life. And already for a long time, the church in the broader sense in this world has embraced that celebration of twistedness of the roles of men and women of what marriage is, twisting it into a mockery of marriage, 
which is by definition barren and unfruitful. If the scripture describes marriage as a man and a woman, the man being the head and the woman being a body, then a same-sex marriage is like two heads or two bodies. In either case, it is a gruesome twisting of the created order. And how advanced this deceitful and demonic and twisted teaching is can be demonstrated by the fact that some of you right now are uncomfortable with what I just said. Because we have been conditioned to think that if we are godly and loving Christians, we can't talk about these things. We cannot assert the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. We cannot announce and proclaim what is good in the created order. We cannot call people from twistedness and perversion to holiness and conformity with the creator and his word. And Paul says, Timothy, listen, you can't get caught up in this. You can't get sucked in by this. You can't get carried away with this. You have to preach Christ. You cannot get sidetracked by all kinds of movements which demand your allegiance. You have to do this for yourself and you have to tell God's people this. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hold to the mystery of godliness, the person and work of Jesus. That's your target. That's your anchor. And the gospel of Christ is the spectacles through which we see and understand the world. We know Christ, and through him we know the Father. And when we know the Father, we know the Creator, and we recognize words of truth which fit with the created order. Even a little child brought up in the gospel can recognize the foolishness and the abomination of how the kingdom of darkness twists the created order and calls it very good. Even a little child can identify that kind of false teaching, whether in the church or out of the church. And that's, that's something we got to keep in mind here. Any false teaching in the church or out of the church, at some point will not jive. It will not fit with the created order. It will not fit with God's word, certainly. And it will also not fit with the way God made the world to be. It's a dead giveaway. It never quite fits because it's twisted. And so Paul says, you need to be trained not in the foolishness of the world which invades the church. Look at verse 6. You need to be trained in the words of the faith. You got to put these things before the brothers and you need to be trained in them yourself. In the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. The Bible is not embarrassed to speak about the faith it's not just some emotional feeling, a warm, fuzzy feeling, I believe in Jesus. The faith is an objective body of apostolic truth, which is proclaimed by the apostles, and they tell the, the people they preached it to, to learn it, to follow it, and to pass it on from generation to generation. Uh, the scripture speaks about the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You don't deliver an emotion. You deliver an objective body of truth. 
the words of the faith and of the doctrine. The, the Christian faith, the Bible, is not embarrassed to speak positively about doctrine. In fact, doctrine is the answer to everything. When there are problems in the church, we've got to get our doctrine right. We've messed up. When we are living in sin, it's because we don't understand doctrine. We don't understand who we are. We don't understand who God is. We don't understand what his law is. We don't understand the truths about the final judgment. And so Paul says, you've got to be trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Don't have anything to do with irreverent old wives' tales. And that's literally what he says. Silly myths is, is in, in the Greek, is old wives' tales. It's a little bit politically incorrect, maybe, but that's what it says. So back then, what were these old wives' tales? These, some of these, these older people just sitting around, giving in to their febrile imaginations and seeing things which aren't there and just uh, taking things out of their imagination and passing it on as truth. And back then it was eat this and don't eat that and don't get married to do this, uh, do these things so that you can be a good person. And they basically were sucking this right out of their thumb. They were making it up. And today we have the same thing. We have a lot of irreverent and silly myths which come from the world invading the church and which are taken over by some in the church. We have the, the pathologies of today spread and magnified over social media. You gotta think like this, you gotta do this in order to be a good person who will not be canceled. And so you gotta have certain ways of thinking about Palestine, about critical race theory, about socialism, about gender theory, about same-sex marriage. And the list goes on. And every messianic movement outside and inside the church tries to bring about a better world. If you just think this way and you just do this, there will be more justice, more righteousness, more hope, and more prosperity. And Paul says, that's got everything totally back to front. Look at verse eight. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is true that certain things can be or ought to be fixed or changed, to make life in the body better. That applies to societies and that applies to individuals. But the Christian keeps a Christ-like perspective. This world will be burned. Our bodies will crumble into dust or be changed in the twinkling of an eye when the Lord returns. And so we are not gonna make our main priority trying to save our bodies or bring about heaven on earth in our society. We seek first the things that are above. We seek godliness. What is godliness? Remember, chapter 3, verse 16. The mystery of godliness is Christ, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. That's who we seek. Because when we focus on him, he carries us towards the future glory. And already here, when we follow Christ, already here, the gospel leavens, it changes, it brings truth and justice and reconciliation and hope and life to individuals, to communities, to societies. It gives us wisdom for how to care for our bodies and to be faithful stewards of our bodies, which are temples of the Holy Spirit, how to care for the creation. Godliness is not just all about heaven, it, 
begins with uh, applications here and now of how we deal with our bodies, with the creation and, and the society around us. But we start at the beginning. We start with the foundation. We start by seeking the things that are above. And then all the other things are added to us. And so in verse 9, Paul says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So it's, it was probably one of the lines that you had to memorize as a new believer in the church. Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Probably a saying or a teaching that people would memorize in the early church. The Christian's hope is not in this body and is not in this life. Our hope, says Paul, is set on the living God, verse 9. Our hope is set on the living God. And what a hope it is, because he is the Savior, not just of our little group of people that think like us, but he is the Savior of all people. Now, if you know your canons of Dort, maybe all of your antenna are up right now. How can God be the Savior of all people when we confess in the canons from the Scriptures that God sent his Son to die only for the elect? Well, we need to know what Ephesus had. Ephesus, remember, was kind of the New York of that time in that area, big, bustling city. It had the cult, the worship of the emperor, and it had this big statue of Julius Caesar. He was no longer the, the emperor right then, but it was an old statue that had been there for a long time, since about 50 years B.C., 48 B.C., I think it was put up. And underneath this statue was a sign. And this sign said, the manifest God, universal savior of human life. You see, that area around Ephesus had gotten into a lot of financial trouble, and Julius Caesar, many years before, had, had bailed them out financially. And so they said, wow, you've helped us in our financial troubles. You are a God, and you are the savior of all people. Paul says, in that context, to this church, he says, well, we have our hope set on the living God. You know who he's referring to. He's saying, that guy, that the, the statue says he's the God who, will, who, will be, who, who saves the Savior of all men, that guy is dead. Caesar is dead. We set our hope on the living God who is really the Savior of all men. Men, there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved except the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he is the way, the truth, and the life. And anything and anyone other than Christ only leads to death if we follow them. And so that's what Paul is saying. We have no one else to present to a dying world except Jesus Christ the living God. And then he says, especially of those who believe. Because God from eternity chose his elect. In time, he has the gospel preached to them and he gives faith 
so that they respond to the gospel. So those two things are not against each other. Jesus is the living God, is the savior of all people. He is the one that must be proclaimed to all. He's the only hope for all sinners, and especially for those who by God's grace will come to believe in him and be regenerated and justified and glorified. And so Paul says, listen, this is the situation, so you've got to command this. This is not something you suggest. Now, I've been in churches sometimes where the minister says, I, I'd like to share with you some thoughts about this verse that we've just read. And, and I always feel like getting up and leaving. Preaching is not what the minister wants to share from his reflections that he's had over the week as he was in the Word. Preaching must be the authoritative command of God. This is the way. Walk in it. And so Paul says, Timothy, you've got to preach with authority. You've got to command these things. You've got to teach these things because they're life and death. Remember, Timothy's on the mission field. He's kind of like a missionary overseeing a whole swath of new and fairly new churches. He's instructing. He's encouraging preachers and elders and deacons. And he's not that old. Look at verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth. He's not that old. Maybe in his late 30s or early 40s. For the kind of job that he's got, the kind of responsibilities he has, he's a bit on the young side for such a heavy responsibility. But godliness gives gravitas even to youth. If you set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, that makes up for you being young. Because you have an old soul which is drenched in the wisdom of the word of God. Now, where are you going to get that from? Well, look at verse 13. You get it from the word. That's the source. Verse 13, Paul says what he keeps saying to Timothy, keep the main thing the main thing. Stick to your training regimen. Don't get distracted. And tell other people to stick to it too. And what is the regimen? The public reading of Scripture. The exhortation, and the word exhortation means preaching. And the teaching. It's exactly what we do 2,000 years after this letter was written. The church focuses on the public reading of Scripture, the preaching and the teaching, the catechizing. And then he says, do not neglect the gift. Verse 14, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Timothy had not necessarily some of the more special charismatic gifts, such as raising the dead or necessarily speaking in tongues, but he had the gift of discerning spirits. He had the gift of teaching and preaching, and training, and he was recognized by the elders of the church who called him and ordained him to this task. And when God calls, he equips. And so, Paul says, in the power of your ordination, the power of your call, with the anointing and equipping of the Holy Spirit, do the job you were given to do. Practice these things, verse 15. Keep on working on them. Stick to your training. Stick to your regimen. It is Christ, Christ, Christ. It is the word, the word, the word. It is preaching, preaching, preaching. It is teaching, teaching, teaching. Don't get distracted by all the other stuff. Watch yourself, verse 16. Watch yourself. 
Don't get distracted, carried away by the latest fads. Still a danger today. The preachers start using the pulpit to start promoting this side or that side of the latest arguments on the internet. That's not what they're called to do. Very tempting sometimes, but it's absolutely useless for the people of God. Watch yourself and watch the teaching. So Timothy has to be checking the churches. He's going to be checking the preachers and the elders to make sure with apostolic authority that they are sticking to the program. This is the training regimen, which brings life. It brings it now. It brings it forever. You've got to stick to it, says Paul, because it means salvation for you, and it means salvation for those who listen to you. So we come to the end of our chapter. Brothers and sisters, if this is what God commands, then this is what we should want. Congregation, we need to be a people that says we don't want the thoughts and the smart ideas or the so-called smart ideas of the latest fads. We want Christ. Give us the word. Not the latest fads and arguments and movements. We want Christ. And elders, your job is to make sure that the preacher gives the congregation who they need and what they need. And if he doesn't, if he gets distracted and sidelined and sidetracked, admonish him. Tell him off. And if he doesn't listen, get rid of him because it is a question of life and death. So believer, Timothy is called to be an example for the church and all of us are called to follow his example. In your life too, keep the main thing, the main thing, the word of God, the gospel of Christ. Is that the focus in your heart, in your marriage and in your home? Or is it a decorative element? Or is it an afterthought? If you thirst for life, if you have your hopes set on the living God, if you thirst for that, for him, then you thirst for the public reading of the scripture and for the preaching and for the teaching. It is life to you. And you are ready to give up everything in order to gain Christ. You are ready to accept suffering in the body, even loss of your physical life itself in order to seek out faithful preaching. Because the word of God is the center of your heart, of your marriage. It's the center of your home. In our home, you say, everyone is expected to strive to develop their gifts and become productive members of society and, and get ready for their future career. But that's not the main thing. All of that proceeds from and flows out of the main goal of this family, that each one of us would know Christ. I remember my father always telling us that when we were kids. He would say, you work hard, you do your best, you go as far as you can, you use your gifts in the service of the Lord. But I would rather that you had the most humble occupation and love the Lord Jesus Christ than that you had all the glories of this world and had a heart which was cold towards him. 
That's what we want for our children, Christ. That each one of us in our families would know Christ, would love Christ, would serve Christ, would obey Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to be training ourselves. We need to be training our children. We need to be exercising the greatest care and self-discipline, training ourselves in the Word so that every thought is captive to Christ, every word is to the praise of Christ, every action is to the glory of Christ. And when that is our regimen, when that is our training program, then in this way, we are preparing ourselves for the life which never ends. Amen.